thank y'all so much, choir. Um, uh, I heard a, a story one time. I, I cannot recall the man's name. I wish I could. But he was a uh, long, long-serving, well-respected theologian that was at a conference one day, and a student asked him, what is the most profound theological truth you have ever come to understand? And he just kind of smiled a little bit. And his words were, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He said, that's the most profound thing that I've ever come to understand. Uh, so resist the urge when you hear Jesus loves me to think that is a children's song. Um, because men and women throughout the ages have died to carry that truth places. Uh, so uh, how many of y'all, maybe this is just me, uh, I had... I have accomplished something great within the last two weeks in my life. I'm very proud to say I have deleted 4,350-something unread emails. Uh, unread, yeah, yes, you, you, yes, please clap. No, just kidding. Um, please don't. It's very embarrassing that I had 4,350-something unread emails. They're not technically unread. I saw them when they were coming in. They were junk, uh, so I deleted them. I also deleted uh, about 400 text messages. Had those. Um, I, I just saw someone say some of those were mine. I hope not. Um, but uh, most of them were also just spam messages from alerts and other things, so I had a lot of those go. But do you know what it's really hard to throw away? It's really hard to miss. Uh, a handwritten letter in the mail. Have you ever noticed that? Have you, uh, if you use email or if you use text messaging or if you use any of the Facebook or anything like that, it's one thing to get a Facebook message or an email or a text message. Uh, it's another thing entirely to go and open your mailbox and you find a handwritten letter from somebody. Why? Because that means somebody sat down, took the time to, to get out a sheet of paper and physically writes, it must be something very, very important if they take the time to write that and send it to you. We have been going through the book of Ephesians on Sunday morning, and lest we forget, Ephesians is a letter. Ephesians is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a primarily Gentile congregation of believers in Ephesus. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen some, some truths that Paul has given them about all that we have, all that we possess in Christ. Starting, starting in verse 3, just running down, you can open your Bible, this is in chapter 1, just several of the things that we have in Christ, that we are uh, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that we are chosen in Him, we are predestined in Him, we are made acceptable in Him, we are redeemed in Him, we, are, um, uh, we have the pleasure of God's uh, purpose, which He purposed beforehand uh, we, in Him. We are united in Him. We are obtained as an inheritance in Him. Uh, that we are to the praise of His glory. We have trusted in Him. That over and over and over again, Paul is reminding them, here's what you have in Christ. He's talking to Gentile believers. And last week, he said, here's the difference between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Not much. 
The only difference is when we heard about Jesus. We're saved the exact same way. And these Gentile believers, what we're going to see today is they had some things they needed to know. They had some things that they needed to catch up on, some essential uh, doctrine, some essential knowledge that they needed to know that maybe the, the Jewish believers might have had a leg up on in the beginning, but Paul is saying, here's some stuff you need to know. Here's some information that you need to have, that you need to cling to, some truth that you need to hang on to. So if you would open your copy of God's Word to the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, starting in verse 15, uh, if you would stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we are going to read down through verse 23. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ which he raised, when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, I pray that you would remind us of these essential truths this morning and that we would not let them go. By your Holy Spirit, impress them on our hearts and change us through them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Essential knowledge for every believer. That Paul looks at this Ephesian church, he looks at these Ephesian Gentile believers, and he says, guys, girls, uh, men, women, children, uh, seniors, young Christians, everybody in here, you need to know this stuff. Essential knowledge for every believer. I want us to look through this passage. Uh, first, I want us to start with kind of an introduction and an example. You'll notice there's not really much supporting scripture under this because the bulk of this is after Paul explains what he's going to do. But there is something in this I want us to see. Uh, an introduction and an example in verses 15 and 16. Paul says, therefore I also, a, here's a good rule of thumb. Uh, that, that you can use whenever you're studying your Bible. Anytime you see the word therefore, you go back and see what the word therefore is there for. Uh, it always points back to what happened immediately before. So what happened immediately before? Paul tells all these Gentiles, we're saved the same way. We're saved in the same Christ. We're blessed, predestined, chosen, made acceptable, adopted. Brought into the blessing, brought into the covenant by the same Christ. We are united in Christ. We are together in Him. Therefore, because we are united in Christ, because we all have faith in the same Christ, because God has saved us all the same way, for this reason, therefore I also, verse 15, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul is thankful that God has saved these Gentile Christians in the same way that he saved the Jewish ones. He's thankful that they have love for all the saints, and he returns that love by doing what? By praying for them and being thankful for them. So here's your introduction and your example. When you hear of a body of Christians 
that has come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do you think Gentile worship in the church at Ephesus looked the same as Jewish worship probably in Jerusalem? Probably not. The Jews have been singing the Psalms since Moses started writing some of the oldest ones. The Gentiles have no idea what the Psalms are for the most part. And yet Paul says, despite the fact that we have different spiritual backgrounds, despite the fact that our churches probably look, sound a little bit different, we have this common bond that we are all saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. We all follow the same commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all saved by grace, and we are all striving through the power of the Holy Spirit to look more like Jesus tomorrow than we did today or yesterday. Paul's response to that is thankfulness. It's joy. It's prayer. So what do we do with that? We take that, and we go through the rest of this passage, and we want to do what Paul did. First, you need to know that Paul was praying for us. There are other churches praying for us, but that we as a church, we should be thankful when we hear of a body of believers, whether it's across the town, across the state, across the country, across the world. Their worship may not always look the same as ours. The people may not always look the same as ours. They may not sound the same as ours. They may not. The funniest thing, when I went to Africa uh, on my mission trip, my, the sen my senior year of college after I was done, uh, they asked us, they said, well, how many, how many drums do you have in your church back in America? And at that point, the church I was at, I said, well, none. And they said, how do you have music? And I said, well, we have a piano and an organ. I said, well, what do you need that for? Said, we don't, you don't need that. I don't know how you'd live without drums, though. Different concepts. Of worship. And do you know which one's endorsed by this book? Neither. Neither of them. But what were we bonded together by? The fact that we were saved by the same Christ. We're worshiping the same Jesus. I was thankful for them. They, will thank, they were thankful for me. And you know what? We just kept right on. They weren't required to, to be like us. We weren't required to be like them. We just all worship the same Jesus. That's Paul's example here. When you hear about a church who might be a little bit different than you, but they share the same Jesus, be thankful. Be thankful that there's a body of Christ somewhere else around here that's impacting their community. Be thankful that there are Christians that are growing in their walk for the Lord. Pray for them. Lift them up. We don't compete with anybody that is a church. Okay? We're not in competition. When I see another church growing at a rate higher than ours, my response is not, oh, they're winning. My response is, yes, he's winning. Paul is thankful for this church in Ephesus because even though they're different, they are not different in who their Messiah is. They're not different in that they're growing in Christ. So as an example, as an introduction, Cultivate a prayerful, thankful attitude for other believers in Jesus Christ, even when they may be a little bit different than you. 
So we're going to look for what Paul prays for now that we've been through that. And this is, this is stuff that we need to know. This is stuff that we need to pray for other Christians to know and apprehend in their life. In verse 17, pray for believers' knowledge of God's person. Starting in verse 17, here's what Paul's praying. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Who is, who is this God that Paul is talking about? This is the God that the Jews have known since God called Abraham out. This is also the God that the Gentiles had no clue about until the resurrection. Same God. The Jewish people had somewhat of an advantage because when you go and you look back, what's really the... the, the they, have almost from Gen, they have from Genesis all the way to Malachi as their history of God's dealing with their people. And yes, there are prophecies about God dealing with the Gentiles, but really the Old Testament is our record of God's dealing with His chosen people. They know about God through the law. They know about God through the prophets. They know about God through the Psalms. They know about God not just through personal experience, but through national experience. They've been through captivity. They've been through... through uh, Exodus, they've been, they got, they walked through the Red Sea. They've seen the miracles and the power of God over the years. These Ephesians are living right under the shadow of a temple of Diana. They don't have this past benefit of the knowledge of this God. So Paul prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, you've probably heard the Greek word that Paul used for revelation here. The Greek word is apocalypsios. What does that sound like? Sounds like apocalypse. You know there's a book in your Bible named Apocalypse? That's just not the English word. That book is called Revelation. The point of the book of Revelation, when you open it, it's, it's not to, you know, when you go home and study the book of Revelation, please don't open the book of Revelation and go, oh, that looks like a Black Hawk helicopter right now, and this is the credit card, and the mark of the beast is owned by, by Sony or whatever, and it's going to be a, don't, please don't do that. I'll, I'll sum up the book of Revelation for you in two words. Here you go. Jesus wins. There you go. Book exegeted. You can send that to Lifeway. It would be a bestseller. Jesus wins. There's Revelation in two words. Revelation is a book, like the rest of the Bible, for us to get to know Jesus. For us to get to know God. To see Jesus as who he really is. So Paul is praying for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And I want to center in on this idea of revelation because it fits with the rest of what we've covered so far in Ephesians for there to be revelation, something has to be revealed. It has to. In a few minutes when we take communion, what's under this blanket is going to be revealed. This cover is going to be lifted off of it. Then I'm going to stand on one side, and Jimmy's going to stand on the other, and we're going to pick up this, and we're going to apocalypsios what's under this blanket. You're going to see it. You're going to have a better knowledge of what's under it. But here's the kicker. If we don't lift up that blanket, you won't see what's under it. You can't stare at it and know how many cups there are in each tray. Somebody's got to pick that blanket up. 
Revelation, you can stare at this book all day long. But if the Holy Spirit does not illumine you, you're just going to be going, I have no idea. What, have you ever just sat there and read the Bible and go, what in the world is happening here? This is why you pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. That an understanding, a knowledge of God, is not something that you just go to Ingalls and grab off the shelf. It is something that God, through His Holy Spirit, has to impart to you. You have got to learn to know God by God's revelation of Himself. This is why we make such a big deal out of Bible study here. This is God's self-revelation. That you can walk outside and you can look at the trees and you can look at the flowers and you, you can look at the sun and you can rightfully come to the conclusion that there is a God. He's powerful. He makes some pretty neat stuff. But you will never come to know of His love. You will never come to know of His grace. You will never come to know of His mercy by walking outside and looking at nature. You find that by looking in His Word. And Paul is praying that these Gentile believers, that God would open their eyes so that they can fully grasp who this God really is. He wants them to know that God has accomplished much for His people apart from their own works and that the center of His accomplishments for them is found in Christ. It says, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Verse 18 that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, or being enlightened, rather. Uh, if you look at Proverbs 29, 18, the writer of Proverbs here in this verse tells us, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. You've probably heard this verse before, is where there is no vision, the people perish. The idea, the idea here is not, it's not a leadership vision. You've got to have leadership or the people will perish. The idea here is a prophetic vision. That's what that word means everywhere else it's used in the Old Testament. Is it's referring to a prophetic vision. In other words, if God doesn't speak, if God doesn't give us revelation, if God doesn't show us who He is, then we're going to run off the rails. Have you ever noticed that? I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, find me a man whose Bible's falling apart and I'll find you a man who isn't. The closer, the, the more revelation of God we have, the more that we come to know Him, the more our life kind of falls in line. That is a result of the work of God. We need God to reveal Himself to us. In verse 18 it says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Some manuscripts actually have the eyes of your heart being enlightened. Uh, that parallels really nicely with Romans 1.21. This isn't on your handout, but Paul says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's Romans 1.21, if you wanted to make a note there to go back and look at it, that when you do not glorify God, when you do not have revelation of God, when you do not know Him, when you are not thankful, when you don't glorify Him, the result is a darkened heart. Darkened eyes of understanding. Walking in lawlessness. Walking in wickedness. So Paul says, what's the, what's the prescription for this? Know God. I'm praying for a revelation of God for you Ephesian Christians to understand. 
And what is God's vehicle for this wisdom and revelation? Where do we get it from? Paul is praying for us to receive this. So where do we receive this blessing? Based on what we've covered so far in Ephesians, where do you think we find this blessing? In Christ. We find this blessing in Christ. So you can add this to your list of things that we get in Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. If you want to know how to know God, look at Jesus. If you want to know God the Father, look at God the Son. John 14 is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And, and Philip asks a question in John 14 that I think is hilarious. He, he looks at Jesus and he says, Show us the Father and it'll be enough. And Jesus kind of looks at him and goes, Philip, have I been with you so long and you haven't known me? How, how are you going to say, show me the Father? You want to know the Father, get to know the Son. Jesus is the perfect image of His Father. We might call it the spitting image. That Jesus is our way to know the Father. He is the clearest self-revelation of God there will ever be. In verse 18, here's what, here are two things that Paul wants you to know in this spirit of wisdom and revelation. One... Uh, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What does it mean, the hope of his calling? Here's a biblical definition of hope as compared to a common definition of hope. Trustful expectation, particularly with reference to the fulfillment of God's promises. Biblical hope is the anticipation of a favorable outcome under God's guidance. More specifically, Hope is the confidence that what God has done for us in the past guarantees our participation in what God will do in the future. This contrasts to the world's definition of hope as a feeling that what is wanted will happen. When I say, hmm, I hope that I'm going to get to eat this for dinner. I hope that it's not going to rain on this day. I hope that it is going to rain on this day. What I'm expressing is a feeling of desire for something that may or may not happen. Biblically, when I reference hope, I'm saying, I believe and know that this is going to happen in the future based on what God has done in my life right now and in the past. I'm not hoping for something that may or may not happen. I am awaiting something that I know will occur. That is biblical hope. And Paul says you need to know the hope of his calling. Stapleton, do you know that if God has called you to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not a maybe calling. God didn't say, I'm going I'm to throw my son out here. He's going to get crucified on the cross. And if you trust in him, I might forgive you. He didn't say that. It's a guarantee. We just, we just read that last week, that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Or probably more accurately, he is the guarantee of our being inherited by God. 
We are the purchased possession that he will redeem at the end of verse 14. It is a guarantee. It is not a God might redeem us. It is a God is going to. We have this blessed hope of his calling. Never let that go. If you're down, you're depressed, you're discouraged, you need encouragement, remember this. God's calling is our blessed hope. It is not going anywhere. It says, know the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Remember, God's inheritance in the saints is referring to him claiming his people purchased with the blood of Christ. So Paul is talking about the glories of being part of that people. Listen to 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. I will never stand behind this pulpit and preach to you, here's what it's going to be like in heaven. Because I don't know. And the Bible doesn't tell me. You know why? Because I think it's really hard to put into words what words can't describe. Paul says right here, there is nobody who has... You can't process it. First John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, oh, praise God, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do you know that God's plan for you, if you trust the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, is to make you to be like Jesus? I, I can't. I just kind of have to stand here in silence and try and process that thought. What would it be like to live in existence where sin is such a foreign idea that we couldn't even contemplate it? You remember one day in heaven? Man, y'all remember 15,000 years ago? They used to have this thing called getting sick. I remember that. That was, that, was, that was when, I don't know, what, what was the word for those things that happened? Oh yeah, bad. I, I, it's been a while since bad happened. I can't really remember it all that well. But there used to be this thing called bad. I can't remember. That must not have been that important. Let's not remember it. Can you fathom? That's God's plan for you. I hasn't seen it. Ear hasn't heard it. It hadn't entered into your heart. Why? Because we can't process it yet. That God has got incredible plans for his church. Church, know God's person. Know what he has planned for you. How good he, he desires to be for you. One of the best ways that you can show love to other believers individually and as churches is to pray for them to increase in their knowledge of God. Pray that they wouldn't fall for cheap imitations of the one true God or for old wives' tales. Pray that they would be encouraged by what God has done for them. That's a great way. 
to bless other churches. Second, we need to see that, uh, that Paul's praying for believers' knowledge of God's power. Now, this is, this is going to be brief because Paul, Paul doesn't really cut any corners here. Verse 19, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? Um, the, the Greek for what Paul just said there is hyperbolon megathos. You probably recognize both of those words. The first word, hyperbolon. What does that sound like? Hyperbole. We use the word hyperbole for things that are excessive. Fishermen love to do this. You go out, you go fishing. Did you get anything? Yeah! I caught one about like that. And you go out and you look in their five-gallon bucket and it's like this. <laughs> hyperbole. The only difference is we use it almost kind of jokingly. That, oh, oh, they were, they were speaking hyperbolically. They were using hyperbole. That There's no way it was that big. Paul's saying, oh, yes. God's power is hyperbolically large. It is excessively great. In fact, he uses the word megathos. It is mega-hyperbolic. It is hyperbolically hyperbolic. It's huge. The exceeding greatness of his power toward us who we believe. Here's, here's pretty much your application right here in a nutshell, and we're not even done with the verse. Church, do you actually believe this? Do we actually believe that God is powerful toward us who believe? Do we really believe that God desires to use this church to shake the foundations of hell? Do you believe that? How about shake the foundations of a dead world? Or do we believe that our lives, our efforts, and our prayers are futile? It's one thing for us to say, I believe God can do this. But there's a difference in saying, I believe God can do this, and I believe God can do this. You catch the difference? Over here, I believe God can do this because I believe he wants to do this and he's going to do this. Over here, well, I believe God can do this. I just don't believe he will. Here's a secret to the Christian life. If you stand over here very much, That's not faith. When God tells you over and over and over and over again in Scripture that he, it's His will to do something, He desires to do something, He wants to do something, and He wants to use His church to do it, and we say, I believe He can do it, but I don't believe He will, that dishonors God. That's sinful. That's not just sadness, that's rebellion. That's slander of God's character. That's calling God a liar. Because God says, I want to do this, and you say, no, I don't think he's going to. The exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. So what is the measure of this power? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, which he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Here's F.F. Bruce. He's, a, he's a, a scholar. Uh, he says, If the death of Christ is the supreme demonstration of the love of God, as Paul wholeheartedly believed, the resurrection of Christ is the supreme demonstration of his power. That if you will never see the love of God more clearly than you see it at the cross, you will never see the power of God more clearly than you see it in the resurrection. 
that the resurrection is the supreme demonstration of God's power. Do you suffer from resurrection amnesia? Have you forgotten that God did that? Have you forgotten that God's going to do that? Have you forgotten that God has the power to resurrect not just dead lives? He has the power to resurrect dead marriages. He has the power to resurrect dead churches. He has the power to resurrect uh, dead hearts, dead joy. Romans 8, 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. If God's power for His church is so loving and God's will for His church is so great, we should not live our Christian lives as though He doesn't care or is not able. Stapleton Baptist Church, hear you, Pastor. I want us to be bold in what we ask God to do here. I don't want us to ask for little things. I want us to ask for big things. I want us to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations that we will only be able to pull off if it's not us who pulls it off. Because here's the secret. If we put ourselves in situations that we know we can pull off because we're the ones who'll do it, we'll do it, but we'll do it alone. God will say, okay, you got it, that's fine. I'll let you handle it. Do you believe in the exceeding, hyperbolically, mega-large, excessive power of God toward us who believe in Him? If we do, then whenever we view a challenge, we need to stop saying, we can't do this. No, this is too big. This is too much. Stop living in defeat. Stop it. You know, I, I look at some of the strategies of Satan sometimes, and they seem so silly, because I'm like, I, I look at what he does, and I go, wow. Somebody would have to be really silly to fall for what he's trying to do. And then the Holy Spirit reminds me, you do it all the time. <laughs> and one of his chief tactics is to make you believe that the battle's not over. Look at pop culture. Look at stories. What is it? What, how are God and Satan always pictured? That God's the good side, Satan's the evil side, and they're eternal equals battling against each other for who's going to win. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. God and Satan are not equals. God's not good and Satan's not evil and they're not equals fighting over. God is ultimately good and Satan's a shrimp. He's an evil shrimp, but this isn't a fight. This was a bloodbath and Satan lost. And that bloodbath saved us. Stop listening to Satan telling you that the war is still going on. The war is over. God won. Well, then why is there all this fighting going on? Why is there spiritual warfare? 
You know, I, I encourage you, go home. They're interesting stories. Go home and Google them. This happened after World War II. This happened after the Civil War. This happened after Vietnam. That There were troops still in the field, still fighting, because they didn't get the message that the war was over. I'll be so bold and say Satan and his forces are dumber than that because they got the message and they're still fighting. Christian, do not forget that God won the war at Calvary. Stop living in defeat. Stop saying we can't do this. This is too big. This is not going to work. We're, we, you know, we can't do this. Stop! Say, you know what? This is too big. Not for Jesus. Let's go. Pray for believers' knowledge of God's power. And then finally, pray for believers' knowledge of Christ's place. This is why you can trust in Jesus' power. Look at this, verse 21. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Uh, these are spiritual terms. Uh, these are not on your handout, but if you want to see these used in a spiritual manner, you can look at Ephesians 3.10 and 6.12. Eventually, I'll preach those verses when we get there. But these are terms for spiritual powers. That Jesus' authority outranks every other spiritual authority in the hierarchy there is. That there's no demon who gets to say, I'm sorry Jesus, you don't get to wield your influence here. No, it doesn't work that way. That Jesus' authority trumps every other spiritual authority. And every, other na and every name that is named. Okay, so what if it's an authority that's not spiritual? What if there's another authority? What if it's a governmental authority? What if it's a municipal authority? What if it's a family authority? What if it's a, 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 an acquaintance authority? What if it's a work? doesn't matter. Jesus' authority is above that. Straight from the top. It is, his authority is exhaustive. And then not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. That there is not an authority that outranks Jesus then, there's not an authority that outranks Jesus now, and there will never be an authority that outranks Jesus in the future. He is ultimately sovereign. This is why you can trust his power, because you're never going to... Have you ever heard the golden rule? He who has the gold makes the rules. Have you ever heard that? There is never going to be somebody who comes along and asserts Jesus' throne. That's never going to happen. Not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. Verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I want to read to you one more quote from F.F. F. Bruce that I thought was so profound. Moreover, there's a difference in character between his supremacy over the latter and his headship over the church. The principalities and powers, insofar at least as they're hostile, are subjected, put down by force, and placed under Christ's feet by victory. On the other hand, the church is one with him, even if she is subjected to him. Over her, he exercises a supremacy only of sanctification and love, and force does not come into it at all. My brain and my hand are not the same thing. You can cut off my hand and my brain will still be here. Please don't. They're separate, but they're also one. I don't think of my hand and my brain as being two separate parts of my body. My brain knows my hand is there. It controls it. My hand responds. 
We are part of Christ's body. He is our head, but we are united to him. And, you know, if, if my left hand does something wrong, I don't, I'm not just like, ah, oh, bad hand, and, and ow. Um, you don't want to do that. Why? Because it's my body. I don't want to destroy my own body. Jesus loves his own body. That God gave us Jesus to be head over this body, the church. That's grace. That's wonderful. I love being united to Christ and him being my head. Listen to Matthew 28, 18 and 19 as we close. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Why go? Because he has the authority. In Acts 9, 4, we've been through this on Sunday nights. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That we are one with Christ. He is our head. He loves us. He's not letting us go. Church, do you know these things today? Do you know that you know God's person? Do you know that you know God's power? And Do you know that you know Christ's place? If you do, that'll encourage you. That'll strengthen you. That'll help you get through the day when you know who God is, how powerful he is, and where Jesus sits. That'll get rid of your fear. That'll get rid of your anxiety. That'll get rid of your nerves. That'll get rid of your anger. That'll get rid of your bitterness. Why? Because you've known the greatest source of love and encouragement and strength that there is. And he's on your side. If you don't know Jesus today, you can. You can be part of Christ's body. You can be forgiven. You can have Christ as your head and know that a good God who is hyperbolically powerful, who is above every authority, is for you. Do you want that? Do you want to know that today? You can. You can come up here and talk to me about it. We can set up a time to talk down more. You can put it, put it, your guest card uh, from the bulletin in the offering plate. I will follow up with you. If, if you're here today as a visitor, I don't want your money. I, I, I would like to be able to talk with you and make sure you know Jesus. You can catch me at the back door after church. Just don't leave here without knowing Jesus. I'm going to pray. Preston is going to come lead us in a couple of verses. And then after that, we're going to observe uh, the Lord's Supper, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you that you are who you are and that you loved us enough to save us. Lord, we thank you for your power towards us. And I thank you, Father, for being a good authority over us, to be a good head over this body. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here today who doesn't know you, Lord, that you would bless them with the grace to, to see their sin and say, I need to repent. I need to trust in Jesus. I need to be forgiven. I want to be part of that body. Lord, I love you. I ask that you draw them to yourself and bless your church. In Jesus' name, amen.